strawberries and cream, pims, champagne. I love tennis. What about you, Erin? Are you much of a fan? Tennis is my favorite sport because it is all about drama, rivalry, and internal conflict. Everything about it. It's such a great combination. But whether you love it or hate it, there was plenty of drama in this match. Oh, yeah. The women's finals at Wimbledon in 2018. It was intense. Serena Williams was back after giving birth to her daughter, and she was playing in top form. But still, she was bested by Angelique Kerber. Yeah, it was a bad day for Serena, but an absolutely gripping match where the action wasn't just on centre court because up in the royal box, there was a very different kind of power struggle going on. One involving one of Serena's good friends, Meghan Markle, of course, now the Duchess of Sussex, and her new sister-in-law, the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton. So we know that there was chatter in the press at this time about discord between the two of them, but none of it was happening in the open. And in fact, they actually kind of looked like they were having a good time up there in the box. This was their first solo outing together ever, though, and to everyone at home, it looked like a move to squash the rumors of a cat fight that the tabloids were running with. What was happening behind the scenes? Well, the reality was, behind the sunny smiles and the sunglasses at Wimbledon, it was more than a catfight going on. The run-up to Meghan and Harry's wedding had been fraught with tensions, rows behind the scenes, and, and really none of this had gotten any better after the royal wedding. In fact, I think it just got worse. This idea of the Fab Four that the media constructed really couldn't have been further from the truth. And along with these tensions and this sense of rivalry, I think was a sense that Harry and Meghan were keen to explore the idea of capitalising on their own star power. It was very clear that the Sussexes and the Cambridges had quite different visions for the Royal Foundation. And I think we were beginning to see Harry and Meghan not only explore their own star quality, but begin to think about how they might do things differently. We also know that the key to this was that Harry and William's relationship had reportedly been on the rocks for a while at this point. And Meghan was at the center of that. But back to the match. What was happening that day? Well, as you mentioned, Erin, this was Meghan and Kate's first solo outing together. But it wasn't a case of game, set and match. Because behind the scenes, there'd been quite a bit of a fallout before this joint appearance at Wimbledon. An argument at Kensington Palace between Harry, Meghan, William and Kate, I understand. And an attempt by Kate to go and make the peace and try and smooth things over. So she went over to Nottingham Cottage, where Harry and Meghan were living at the time, with a bouquet of flowers and a suggestion to Meghan that perhaps they attended Wimbledon together. The flowers didn't go down so well, and nor did the invitation to go to Wimbledon. And Meghan told her that she didn't need her flowers or her invitation. She could get that by herself. Thank you very much. Behaving that way seems so uncharacteristic for the totally put-together Megan that we see, but I think now that we know that she was really struggling from the minute that she joined the family, it makes a little bit more sense. It was not smooth sailing adjusting to life as a royal, and she was an outsider in every way. She's a biracial black woman. She's American. She's not from the world of the British elite. By 2018, she'd had the press pick apart her family and her personal life, with some of the coverage, like, being overtly racist. Waves of harassment on social media, discord within the family, and, you know, maybe it's just my empathetic side coming out, but I can understand that a bouquet and a ticket to a tennis match just didn't quite feel like the right fix. 
This moment at Wimbledon in 2018 highlights the uncomfortable reality of being a part of this family. It's hard enough to marry into any family and fit in. These people have their relationships that go back decades, and you have to navigate all of these existing dynamics. But the added pressure of performing these relationships for the world and contending with public opinion is a recipe for disaster. At this point, Megan had been through the ringer. Well, she had, Erin. And I think even for an actress who was very confident and capable and very used to being in the spotlight, this was a real challenge. In this episode, we'll look at power through the eyes of the first truly independent woman to join the Windsor flock. And after relinquishing that independence to the system, how she wrestled it back. We'll hear from Vanity Fair contributor Michelle Ruiz on what some believed Meghan's racial background could do for the monarchy. And American Viscountess Julie Montague offers insight on assimilating into Britain's elite. Journalist Afua Hagen sheds light on just how toxic the online environment can get around royal news coverage. And royal writer Omid Scobie lets us in on Harry and Meghan's decision to leave it all behind. I'm Erin Vanderhoof. And I'm Katie Nichol. This is Dynasty The Windsors. Episode 4, Racism in the Royals. Meghan Markle exposes an ugly truth. To understand Meghan and the Royals, you have to go back to find out who she was and who she wanted to become. Meghan was one of those kids who was always meant to be on the public stage. And she really wanted to make a difference. She grew up in Los Angeles, and her mother still lives there in a neighborhood called View Park, which is often described as the Black Beverly Hills. Her father, Thomas Markle, was a Hollywood lighting director for a number of well-known TV shows. He had met her mother, Doria Ragland, on set, as she was also working in the industry. She later went on to become a yoga instructor and social worker. Thomas had been married before and had two children already, Yvonne, now called Samantha, and Thomas Jr. Apparently, Megan didn't see much of them when she was growing up. She has described herself as growing up as an only child. Her parents split when she was still really small, but they did co-parent. They weren't poor, but they weren't super well-off either. Still, they worked to send Megan to an elite private Catholic high school. She's also famous for fighting Procter & Gamble when she was only 11. She saw an ad about women doing the dishes, and she wrote the company a letter. Nickelodeon News covered it at the time. When we first saw the commercial, I knew something would be done because I was furious. Women are fighting greasy pots and pans. And I said, wait a minute, how could somebody say that? I think I'll write a letter. She wrote that letter and made her first media appearance. Here's Michelle Ruiz, Royals writer and Vanity Fair contributor. I love the idea of, and I see myself in a little 11-year-old who's like compulsively raising her hand and writing letters to the First Lady and to Nick News and and to Procter & Gamble to complain about a sexist soap commercial and using her voice and feeling empowered to do that from a young age. I think a lot of little type A Tracy Flick sort of girls, we see ourselves in Megan. Tracy Flick, a character played by Reese Witherspoon in the 1999 film Election about high school politics, is a driven high school student who becomes the villain for trying way too hard. The movie trailer tagline, never underestimate an overachiever. And many people like Michelle and like me can relate to somebody like Megan. But a strong personality, unwavering drive and a lot of confidence will always be difficult for some people to stomach. I think Megan can be a kind of like love her or hate her kind of person. 
because she's a strong personality. And I think that's what draws me to her. Megan has a strong personality and has always known where she wants to go in life and what she wants to achieve. And the confidence her parents instilled in her, coupled with the fact that she was very bright and well-educated and had a whole ton of tenacity, meant that she actually did go on to become a great success. Originally, she toyed with a career in politics, but she'd always been drawn to the movie industry and her father's world. So when she decided to become an actress, both her parents supported her. And it wasn't easy. Megan has written openly about the many knockbacks that she's had to overcome. But of course, it was all worth it when she landed that dream role in the TV series Suits. Right, Suits. A fascinating show about lawyers yelling at each other. Mike Ross? Hi. I'm Rachel Zane. I'll be giving you your orientation. Wow, you're pretty. Good. You've hit on me. We can get it out of the way that I'm not interested. No, I'm sorry. I I wasn't hitting on you. In 2015, Megan was in a great place. She had a lead role in Suits, playing paralegal Rachel Zane. She also had a successful blog called The Tig, which covered lifestyle, fashion and beauty. She wasn't A-list by any means, but she was a very credible actress with an impressive Instagram following. I think she represented a new kind of celebrity that really came up in the social media era. What she posted on Instagram seemed equally important to her brand and her notoriety as her acting itself, and her social media presence was quite key to her rise. Well, her social media platform gave her a global outreach, which was really important for her other passion in life, philanthropy. We know that charity work has always been a major part of her vision, and she leveraged her name and her fame to make a real impact. In fact, this probably led to her first big moment on this sort of political stage, well, as an adult. March 10th, 2015, Midtown Manhattan, a major event for UN women. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome American TV and film actress and UN women's advocate for political participation and leadership, Meghan Markle. It's a few days after International Women's Day, and Meghan Markle is about to make one of the most important public appearances of her career so far. Naturally, she's excited and nervous. Addressing world leaders would cause anybody to break into a sweat. Well, good evening. That doesn't feel like enough, does it? It's just great evening. Maybe that's better. UN Secretary General, Executive She was actually nervous. I mean, almost blushing. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, I am tremendously honored to be UN Women's Advocate for Political Participation and Leadership. I am proud to be a woman and a feminist. And this evening, I am extremely proud to stand before you on this significant day, which serves as a reminder to all of us of how far we've come, but also a mid-celebration, a reminder of the road ahead. I want to tell you a story that I think this moment is the most revealing about how Megan views herself. When she tells the story of her own life, it's that of an advocate, an activist even. And when you recognise that's how she would like to be regarded, I think you can understand her a whole lot better. Michelle Ruiz interviewed Elizabeth Took, Megan's former publicist. And once she did that, I think, you know, for a Vanity Fair story that I reported, her former publicist sort of told me that wasn't really enough for her. That wasn't really fulfilling or feeding her 
to simply, you know, show up on set and act. Michelle told us that Megan would go on trips to Rwanda or India in her off time. And she worked with organizations like UN Women. Now, you can kind of see how meeting somebody like Harry would be a perfect fit for Megan's new vision of herself. So I think at that point, her goal might have shifted to, you know, using her voice or using whatever status she had acquired to be in service of other people. Um, At this point, you know, I think marrying Prince Harry obviously gave her an opportunity to kind of flex that muscle, to flex that humanitarian muscle. And Meghan was really great at it. Warm, engaging, passionate. The UN role was something she found meaning in. And because she's always been a brilliant networker, Meghan had connections in high places. Justin Trudeau, for example, Canada's prime minister. One of her biggest moments was being photographed alongside Trudeau for a Vanity Fair shoot featuring future world leaders. And Meghan was there in her capacity as an ambassador for the charity One Young World. Now, this was back in 2016. But you get a real taste of who Meghan is. And even back then, she had a great little black book of contacts. Megan went to one charity event with Serena Williams and kind of became good friends with her after that. I think you can look at it as that she's making a concerted effort to make connections, and perhaps she is, which there'd be nothing wrong with that. Or it's that she's a magnanimous person and a connector who, when she is in these situations and meeting all sorts of people, she forges connections with them. As Omid Scobie wrote in his definitive book on Harry and Meghan's royal journey finding freedom, along with co-author Carolyn Durand, it was these connections that led Meghan to meet Prince Harry in London. She was on a promotional trip making appearances on behalf of Ralph Lauren, and friends hooked her up with a stay at Soho House and a date with Harry at the exclusive hotel. Her first marriage had ended a couple of years earlier, and she was embracing new experiences. She went on a date with a guy that seemed to be just as hopeful, optimistic, and kind as she is. And she had all the experience to be the type of partner, wife, and mother that Harry was looking for. And she could still be an advocate. She might not have thought about what it would be like to become one of the most written-about women in the world. But she had to assume that she'd have the power to make a real difference. And that's exactly what she wanted to do. Let's just rewind a bit, because Harry wasn't just a guy. And this wasn't just a regular date. He was the most eligible bachelor in the world, one of the most famous people on the planet. But there absolutely was a genuine connection. And apparently, after just a couple of dates, Harry took Meghan to Botswana, where I'm told, according to a source that knows them well, they had this moment together where Meghan said to Harry, together, we can change the world. And I think she absolutely believed that they could. And I think Harry believed that too. I mean, he had been looking for that person for a long time. But power and influence doesn't come without a price. And I'm not sure Meghan had any idea just how steep that price would be because royalty isn't intended to serve radical change like that, like changing the world overnight. It's about stability and continuity. We can see from her life story that she's given a damn about the wider world for a very long time. As royal editor for Harper's Bazaar and part of the royal press pack, Omid witnessed Meghan in action firsthand right from the beginning. That authenticity that she brought to the role was really what made her special in what she did because, you know, as we've seen with other royal family members, it doesn't always come so naturally. It's what's expected from you, but whether it comes from the heart or not, 
is something that very rarely happens. But I think with Megan was this, I guess, ability to put herself out there regardless of what she was going to receive in return. So even when the press would criticize her for something, she wasn't going to change that for anyone because that's done her very well in life up until this point. And so I think as a modern royal, she embraced all of the things that we care about in the modern world. Meghan truly is a modern public figure, this self-made, multi-talented, biracial woman. And when you square this with the institution of a hereditary monarchy, what you have is a sort of public influence from the old world clashing with the new one. Yes, and Erin, I think a lot of people saw this as a really good thing. So when Harry and Meghan's relationship went public, most people felt this was an opportunity for the monarchy to become more reflective of what Britain was in the 21st century. The Queen has always supported diversity throughout the Commonwealth. And the fact that the UK is a melting pot of so many races and cultures is something she's enormously proud of and has publicly spoken about many times. But this was a senior member of the royal family, her grandson, marrying a woman of dual heritage. And so it was a big deal. Right. The royal family as an institution is so connected to the UK's history of colonialism, and so many moments of imperial history are a part of the family's personal story. But Meghan joining was a sign that it could be capable of really fundamental change. It offered hope to a lot of people, but I think it was personal for the estimated 14% of the country that comes from a non-white background. Here's Michelle Ruiz again. I think Meghan marrying into the family and their royal wedding held so much promise that the monarchy could evolve with the presence of this woman. But I think, you know, in hindsight, when we go back to that moment, I I think a lot of people, particularly Black women, have told me that they really didn't ever have that much hope at all that she was going to be able, that one individual was going to be able to shift centuries and centuries of entrenched racism and colonialism. It's a pessimistic thing to say, but I feel like I understand it. I remember the optimism and the joy that was everywhere when Barack Obama was elected back in 2008. But I think at the same time, it already seemed obvious to African-Americans that it wasn't going to fix, say, the racial wealth gap or secure all voting rights. The symbol was important, but it by itself would never be enough. I think you're right, Erin. And I think that perhaps the idea that this mixed-race marriage, the first in the House of Windsor's history, was going to change everything overnight at the history of colonialism and empire, was overly optimistic and perhaps a little bit unrealistic. What I think the British people saw in this union was the start of a new chapter. We were finally seeing Britain reflected in the royal family, in Harry and Meghan, and that felt really optimistic and exciting. Exactly. But at the same time, if we were judging based on the initial media reactions to their relationship, maybe we would have been more prepared for what happened next. Well, amidst the excitement over their relationship, there was a concerning narrative being spun in some of the media which focused on Meghan's race. 
And Harry was so incensed by some of the things being written and said about his girlfriend that in November 2016, he released an unprecedented statement saying that a line had been crossed. His girlfriend, Meghan Markle, has been subject to a wave of abuse and harassment. Some of this has been very public. The smear on the front page of a national newspaper, the racial undertones of comment pieces, and the outright sexism and racism of social media trolls and web article comments. I think the press coverage of Meghan in the UK out the gate sent a very unsubtle message that she was not of this world. She was not of the British, white, upper crust, elite, royal world. There were headlines that maligned Meghan's mom, Doria, who is Black, as being, quote, straight out of Compton, automatically portraying her as living in a, quote, gang-scarred neighborhood and sort of asking in this very cloying way if Harry would be dropping by for tea. You know, that's a crystal clear diminishing of Meghan's family as unworthy based on her and her mom's race. Michelle Ruiz noted just a few examples of what was being published. It didn't really matter that there was a lot of support and love for Meghan in other areas or that some of it was just bad reporting. It was nothing like Meghan had experienced before and nothing the palace had ever experienced before. And they didn't know how to deal with it. It was out of control. And race was now the elephant in the room. And as Prince Harry's communications secretary himself said, it wasn't just about what newspapers and magazines and commentators in those publications were saying. It was the trolling that it inspired online. I think the magnitude of the trolling was still so new to so many of us around this time. And I think it's helpful to put Meghan's arrival on the world scene in context. They went public just a few months after the 2016 Brexit vote, which was accompanied by a rising sense of nationalism and an increased tension in Britain. Harry made his statement about his relationship with Meghan in the same month that Donald Trump won the presidency in the U.S., these were complicated moments in both countries' politics, and, you know, we're really dealing with the country's foundational issues here. But looking back, we know for sure that social media made it so much worse and so much more contentious. In Megan's case, the critical press coverage could set off a wave of harassment on social media platforms, starting a cycle that just continued. It's a dynamic that also affected people outside of the family. As a Black woman living in Britain, I don't feel great about Britain at the moment. Afua Hagen is a Scottish Ghanaian journalist and broadcast presenter who regularly covers the royals. We have not progressed to a point where, I mean, we're still discussing if things are racist. That doesn't make me feel good about living in this country, about contributing to the discourse, that people still don't quite, quite seem to understand the concept of racism being really, really bad. Afua thinks Megan's experience illuminates how far Britain needs to go in learning how to address racism and racial inequities. It also reflects a conversation about the nature of racism that has roiled American society for decades. There's a real hangover from what happened with Megan and Harry and what happened with the Sewell report and racism after the Euros. That leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. And in the mouths of loads of black people in the UK. And I think to myself, you know, are we ever going to get to a point where Britain will ever see black people as British? British enough for them. Here, Afu is talking about two really painful recent upsets over race that happened in the UK. 
After last July's Euro Cup final, black players on England's national team received a torrent of racist abuse online. It was really bad. However, just a few months earlier, a team led by consultant Dr. Tony Sewell released this major report looking into the education system that made headlines for the conclusions that Britain is no longer, and I quote, deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. It makes for a really uneasy juxtaposition. For a lot of people of color, the effects of race hatred still feel real. It's especially apparent on social media where people can behave in a way that they would not act in person just because they're anonymous. What you say is really interesting, Erin, and you talk about the effects of race hatred still being felt as very real. And that awful moment after the Euro Cup final, which just felt so horrible. And actually, one of the first people to come out and condemn that behaviour was Prince William. There's been some very distasteful And as you point out, often anonymous commentary online. Everyone is entitled to an opinion and I'm all for having conversations, even difficult ones. But let's do it respectfully. It takes us back to a question that feels so important for understanding what really happened to Meghan. There's so much affection for her in the public and also behind the palace walls. So why did everything get so sour? It happened for a few reasons, but the onslaught of hatred was key. It's ironic because Meghan, as a mixed-race American, was really adept at navigating the U.S.'s specific context. She has been able to talk about race in an inclusive and comforting way without sacrificing the truth. But once the story got out of control, her skill wasn't enough, and the regular palace rules for shaping your public image just didn't apply anymore. I hope we're all going to look back on that period of time as a real low point in public discourse because the same frustrating conversations were happening on every channel, but we weren't getting anywhere. Here's Piers Morgan fighting with Alex Beresford on Good Morning Britain. Piers, it's their lived experience. And again, this is this is where the confusion comes in. How do you sometimes identify covert racism? It's actually quite hard because it's not there. No, but Alex, on that one, it's white. not true. I know, There's no covert Piers, racism. But Piers, no what racism. you're saying is but, there are facts. Right. And what Alex is saying is there is an experience and a perception of those facts. When you go on and you do these debates, and often it's a lot of setting the record straight. It's a lot of, no, that didn't happen. No, they didn't say that. This is the reality. And then afterwards, the discourse will go on for days about what you said. Afua Hagen again. And 50% of it will be people like Sussex Gordon, supporters of Meghan and Harry going, yay, thank you for putting the record straight. And 50% of it will be like, you know, you only like Meghan because you're black and she's black and we don't need black people in the royal family. Can you imagine, you know, I'm just a commentator, journalist, reporter who talks about the royals. Imagine being them. And like the, the amount of trolls that I have to deal with, it must. she must have that times... A million. Michelle Ruiz thinks we were asking the wrong questions. I think the question was out there. Like, could this institution, the same institution that's responsible for the transatlantic slave trade, colonizing large swaths of the world, truly embrace a Black woman among its ranks? But I think the question is equally, you know, could that Black woman stand to accept that institution? This was never going to work. And one woman, one biracial woman, really did not stand a chance, nor could she single-handedly shoulder the responsibility of modernizing the British monarchy. I think some might question whether it was Meghan's place to single-handedly modernize the monarchy. I mean, 
I would say that the Queen's done a pretty good job of that over the past seven decades. The institution has modernised and evolved, but admittedly not at lightning speed. Meghan did have the potential to bring about real change, and I think that's the saddest thing in this whole story. I was with her and Harry in South Africa when they visited the township in Nyanga and Meghan addressed the people as a woman of colour. That was a first, and it was wonderful. There was no one else in the royal family today who could say that except for Meghan. It wasn't political, it wasn't controversial, it was powerful, and it was brilliant. One of the highest priorities for the Windsors as an institution is to remain apolitical, staying above the fray of politics and civil discourse. But just by being a Black woman and by virtue of her advocacy work, Meghan was inherently a political figure, and she was going to be seen that way whether she intended it or not. So in order for this delicate balance to remain, something was going to have to change. Meghan or the institution? Was changing something Meghan was willing to do? I think what we saw was her power completely taken away from her. And now, like, the way that Meghan has taken her power back is bloody inspirational, to be honest. For her to step out and just say, you know what, actually, I'm not doing this. After the break, we talk to an American who understands the challenges of assimilating into Britain's elite as an outsider. And if you are watching this video... Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. In order to be able to play her part and play it well, there was a lot for Meghan to learn. Unlike Kate, who was British and at least had the cultural background and understanding of the monarchy and what it means to people in Britain, Meghan claims she didn't do any research about Harry before they were introduced. Yeah, I'm just going to say, Erin, I find that a little hard to believe because I think we all just Google everything now. It's par for the course. I mean, if she genuinely didn't, then I think that's real restraint. Maybe she just wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you know, you'd have to have your head in the sand, wouldn't you, not to have seen the headlines about Vegas and everything else. And maybe she didn't want to colour her opinions about Harry before she met him by Googling him. Let's also not forget this is a woman who definitely knew who the royal family was. As a young girl, she'd gone to see Buckingham Palace. Um, according to her biographer, Andrew Morton, she was fascinated in the life of Diana. So I'm just going to take that comment with a pinch of salt, if I'm allowed to. I think she probably knew the rough outlines. But like me, I bet the longer she was around the royals, she was constantly stunned by how much she didn't actually know. And besides, I know I have had very limited experience actually being in a hierarchy, and I imagine she didn't know how bad it would actually make her feel to be in one. 
And let's face it, although we share a language, there are enduring cultural ideas that don't translate on both sides of the pond and stereotypes that still color opinions. Brits don't always have the warmest feelings about Americans and vice versa. I think it's fair to say there were cultural barriers. By her own admission, Meghan has said that she didn't really understand what royal life would demand of her and the full implications of her role and her title. She didn't have a huge amount of time to adjust. You know, Kate had almost a decade to learn the nuances of royal life and to understand what it was going to entail. And Meghan didn't have that. And the reality is royal life is very different. So I came over to the UK right at the start of of basically the turn of, of the century, 2000, and I came over for my job. Julie Montague is one of the few people that can truly understand the cross-cultural chasm that Meghan had to traverse when she was stepping into her role. Julie, better known to some as the American Viscountess on social media, is from a small town in Illinois. She was dating her now husband, Luke Montague, for months before she even learned that he had a title, Viscount Hinchingbrook, and would one day become the Earl of Sandwich. And it took even longer for her to fully grasp what that would mean for her relationship. He paid for something on his credit card. And I, I looked on it and I said, why does your credit card say Viscount Hinchingbrook? I mean, that is a mouthful right there. And he looked at me in somewhat horror and said, it's Viscount Hinchingbrook. I remember him sitting me down saying, well, I'm a part of the aristocracy. And I'm going to be honest with you. I did not know that the aristocracy still existed. I actually said to him, what? What do you mean? It still exists over here? He was like, uh, yeah, Julie, there's, you know, dukes and duchesses and earls and countesses and marquis and marchionesses. And I was like, wait, what? This is a whole new world. The British aristocracy, the peerage, is different from royalty. They're part of a historic hierarchy with titles and property bestowed by past monarchs and not necessarily part of the royal family bloodline. But the world they live in today is still one of upper-class expectation, wealth and tradition. And Julie had to learn to fit into that world very quickly, especially when it came to complex manners and protocol. I wish there was an instruction manual. In fact, maybe I'll write one one day. I wanted to learn. So I asked a lot of questions. It was me listening out to see how my husband was addressed and how he would address people. It was me looking around to see how people passed the salt. Like you would never pass the salt directly across the table if the person across the table asked for the salt. It needed to go all the way around the table, one person, one person, one person, one person, until it gets, you know, you could have a table of 18 people, and by the time the salt gets you, you would have eaten your meal. There's an assumption that everything we read, that's what it's like in royal or aristocratic life. That's totally not true, and it's not, it's like anything. You can't become an expert on anything until you learn on the job. We know that Megan told Oprah that Harry had told her about curtsying first, but Julie can understand why the Duchess of York would be roped in for that lesson. I 100% believe her when she said that the Duchess of York took her aside to teach her how to curtsy to the Queen. Oh, for sure. That's absolutely what happened. What do you think? Harry's going to sit there on the side and be like, hey, yeah, so Granny's coming today. I'm going to teach you how to curtsy. Harry doesn't curtsy, so how would he even know how to curtsy? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I think if you look at Megan's story, it's a story of a, of a girl working really hard. You know, that is the American dream, that can-do 
attitude. So that's the America that I grew up in. I think that definitely speaks to why I think so many Americans have taken it really personally that Meghan was received this way in the British press. I have a lot of critiques that I can make about, you know, the idea of the American dream, and I don't think it's a perfect thing. I don't even really think it's that real sometimes. But in meaningful ways, Megan reflects a lot of our society's professed values, and it felt really jarring to see that be disregarded so offhand. The American dream is built on an idea of self-invention, that you can be anything you want to be if you work hard enough, a land of opportunity. And whether Megan fully ascribed to this or not, she seems to embody it the conviction in your own potential. It's not that Megan couldn't do those things in the UK and wasn't generally praised for them because she was, but the parameters of success and access are different when it comes to the upper classes. I think the idea of new money versus old money gets at this cultural difference in some circles in Britain. It's not enough to have the money to get into the room. Your background and your class and pedigree really determine if you're taken seriously. We're talking about a hierarchy of historic dynasties, nearly 1,000 years in the case of the British royal family. They're held to a totally different standard and change, social mobility, someone from the outside world coming into that world is a rare and difficult pill to swallow for some. We saw this when Kate Middleton joined the family and again, differently, with Meghan. Here's Michelle Ruiz again. The phrase social climber with respect to her is has always been very bothersome to me because I think, you know, that is really laden with both sexism and racism. I think we, you know, we talk about white men who elevate their station in life as pulling themselves up by their bootstraps or being upstarts. But for a biracial woman who is ambitious and goes to college and makes something of herself on a variety of levels, she's a social climber. You know, it sends a very unsubtle message that you are not supposed to, a woman like her is not supposed to break out of her preordained station in life. Megan is someone who seems like she prefers being in the driver's seat in her life. Staying in one's place just doesn't seem like it's in her nature. So let's fast forward to March 2021. Viewers around the world watched as Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, sits opposite Oprah. It's a year since she and Harry stepped down from their royal roles and left the UK, and Meghan is pregnant with their second child. I've always valued independence. I've always been outspoken, especially about women's rights. I mean, that's the sad irony of the last four years is I've advocated for so long for women to use their voice. And then I was silent. Um, Were you silent or were you silenced? The latter. Here's another word to add to the list of how you described last night. We'll begin with there. Explosive. The explosive interview touched on so many issues, including race, mental health, and what appears to be a deep rift in the royal family. The internet goes into meltdown. This is the scoop of the decade, drawing in 17.1 million viewers for CBS alone. And what the couple said in the interview was explosive. There were two standout moments which were catastrophic for the royal family, the big bombshells we all know. Meghan claimed that she was so miserable within the institution that she felt suicidal when she was pregnant with Archie. And she and Harry claimed that a member of the royal family had raised concerns about the colour of their unborn baby's skin. 
But there were other claims levelled against the royals too. Harry said that they'd been cut off financially by his family. He claimed his brother and his father were trapped by the institution and that he and Meghan had no choice but to leave the royal family because they didn't feel heard, supported or protected. It was worse than anything the palace had anticipated, but the response, when it came a few days later, was deliberately measured. The Queen released a succinct statement, just 60 words long, with three brilliant words that made her opinion on it all crystal clear. Recollections may vary. The interview marked a turning point for Harry and his relationship with his family. Many of the claims that they made were disputed, but what's undeniable is Meghan's conviction and performance made it a pop culture moment. Here's Afua Hagen again. I think what we saw was her power completely taken away from her. You know, like Oprah so so famously said, and I love it, you know, were you silent or were you silenced? And that, and, and that was it. And now, like, the way that Meghan has taken her power back is bloody inspirational, to be honest. You know, for her to step out and just say, you know what, actually, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to be in this family where I feel like my life is threatened or my child's life is threatened or I'm telling you I'm suicidal. She said, no, I'm not having it. And her husband said, you know what, no, I'm not having it either. To be part of the Windsor dynasty is to submit to a complex institution. It's not just joining a family. It's becoming part of a tightly managed organisation, beholden to a nation, a government, and to a degree, a PR image and a press strategy. You're instructed to stay within the boundaries of what is believed to ensure the survival of the dynasty. And for most family members, this is a done deal. The expectation is that you go with it. For Meghan and Harry, they had to weigh this duty versus the safety and well-being of themselves and their children. Omid Scobie documented this journey in Finding Freedom. I think the Oprah interview helps many people understand why the couple needed to step away from their roles. I think there was perhaps a feeling, and I would imagine that prior coverage has sort of fed into that a bit, that this was just a spoiled pair that wanted to do everything their way and that's why it just was no longer working for them within the institution. But of course we heard from the couple that there were far bigger issues to deal with and issues that still to this day have never quite been cleared up, particularly when it comes to racism. And I think for that, for many people around the world, hearing that brought a sort of new level of respect for the couple actually breaking away from their royal roles and making such a dramatic change in order to improve their lives. So Erin, I guess the million dollar question is, was it all worth it? What Meghan and Harry were looking for is a little bit of freedom and the money to make that freedom worth it. And when you look at their lives now and what they have, they have these careers that they're getting into that allow them to have a voice, make themselves be heard. They have a beautiful house. They have a family that they can keep together. They have friends around. And they have all of the things that I think young people are looking for. And for me, I think that stability, security, and love is so much more important than titles. What they did took a lot of guts. 
standing down as working members of the royal family. And let's face it, their royal currency is still their biggest ticket. And they have those titles. No one's taken them away from them. They remain members of the royal family. But standing down, giving it all up, getting their freedom, it certainly came at a cost. It's come at a cost for Prince Harry, whose relationship with his family really now is in tatters. Now, in 2022, Meghan is playing a new role, or rather, a reimagining of an old one. Advocate, celebrity, wife, and now mother. The Sussexes are a family of four and have settled in California, where Meghan grew up and made her name. It's always nice to be asked what Meghan is really like, because I, that was really one of the reasons why we wrote Finding Freedom in the first place. Omid Scobie again. Who we see today working in California as the Duchess of Sussex, who has stepped away from her royal role, someone who's incredibly determined, family-orientated, that cares about what they do. And as a result of that, we're seeing the work that she's doing have an incredible impact on the world stage. And so to not have that within the royal family seems like such a, a loss. Meghan is the CEO of her own family firm now, forging her own path like she's always done using her voice to advocate for issues like paid parental leave in the U.S., meeting with organizers, and lobbying politicians. Along with her husband, she's nabbed development deals with Netflix and Spotify, and even a voiceover gig for a Disney movie. She's making the rules. Megan seems much more at home sitting in an armchair across from Ellen DeGeneres than she was really ever able to be at those royal engagements. She's capitalizing on the most powerful tool in her disposal again— her own image. And she's doing it in a way that the monarchy and royal life just would not have allowed. In many ways, she's following the model set by her late mother-in-law. My first priority will continue to be our children, William and Harry, who deserve as much love and care and attention as I am able to give, as well as a, an appreciation of the tradition into which they were born. That was, of course, Princess Diana, one, if not the most beloved royal mother ever to grace the House of Windsor, leaving pretty big shoes for Meghan and Kate to fill. In the next episode, we'll consider the influence and power of royal mothers. Her desire was to have them understand their duty, understand that was ahead of them, but also feel that they could be part of the human race, frankly, which was an enormous uh, contribution she made to their lives. You know, we are all used to, particularly with the royal family, um, things being done in a certain way. And as British people, we like that tradition. We like that that respect. You know, this is how it's always been done. And, and so when someone sort of tries to shake it up a little bit, it can be a little bit disconcerting. Next time on Dynasty, The Windsors. Dynasty is hosted by Katie Nichol and me, Aaron Vanderhoof, and is produced by Vanity Fair in partnership with something else. Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Darby Doris and Brian Erstadt are our editors. Rob Dozier, Zoe Edwards, Chica Ayers, and Sylvie Lubo are our producers. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Bashakra Ten and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. And Ike Agbatola, Lily Hambly, and Peyton Hayes are our production coordinators. This episode was engineered by Josh Gibbs and the theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Fact-checking was done by Sarah Kurlevsky. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howard. Claire and Katie Rich are staff editorial consultants. Thank you to our guests, Michelle Ruiz, 
Julie Montague, Omid Scobie, and Afua Hagen. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com slash dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.